Hey everybody, it's that time of year again. If you're looking for some new gear or you've been listening to the show for some time and would like to give back, I've launched a brand new spring apparel store for the MyFit Podcast. Our new brand colors for this year are mint green and black, and the store has t-shirts, men's tanks, women's tanks, and crop tops in a plethora of sizes with that color scheme. As most of you know, podcasting has become a burning passion of mine over the past three years, and I've had an absolute blast producing insightful conversations with some of the highest achievers in the world on a weekly basis, and I'm so excited for what the future looks like for the MyFit Podcast. If you'd like to give back to the show, hit the link in my bio on Instagram and purchase a shirt in my online store. The store will close at the end of April, so make sure to get on there soon. Thank you all for your continued support for the past three years. I am forever grateful. Enjoy this week's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at The MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 162 of The MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, I'm stoked to chat with Adam Lane Smith. Adam is a two-time number one Amazon best-selling novelist and a retired licensed psychotherapist specialized in trauma and attachment with experience in both clinical and correctional mental health settings. Adam has written over 20 books and coached thousands of individuals through all things ranging from divorce to inmates facing the death penalty. His thoughts and ideas surrounding attachment are truly one of a kind and can really shape the way you view yourself and the relationships around you. Like most of my podcasts, I recently read Adam's book, Slay Your Fear, a conversation for people that grapple with insecurity. And the title really spoke for itself. And I had to get into it and read it. It was a quick, easy read, about 100 pages. And for a lot of the book, I felt like I was being called out and I felt like I could really relate to the things that he was talking about when it comes to attachment and how the base of all of our conflicts and all of our relationships and everything around us is based on attachments. And some of the topics we got into today were first talking about what is attachment? How do you define it? And how does it show up in our youth, in teenage years, and also in adults in romantic relationships? After that, we talked about understanding what determines attachment health. Adam is a former uh, psychotherapist, so I think a lot of the stuff comes back to your parents, how you were raised, just like most therapy settings. And I was curious on, does that also help determine our attachment health? After that, we talked about feeling useful and trusted through vulnerability. A lot of golden nuggets in there. Then we talked about the importance of emotional intimacy for women and how that looks in a relationship. Then we talked about fixing insecurities with self-respect and investing in people rather than outcomes. And then at the end, we talked about understanding how men and women communicate differently and some of the lessons that both genders can learn to help maybe save 
uh, years, if not decades off of their life and hopefully save some conflicts along the way. You guys can check this one out. Uh, make sure to share it with your friends and family. Be sure to leave a rating and review as that sh- helps my show grow tremendously and helps to bring on more amazing guests like Adam. This is a unique topic, not the typical fitness realm, but so much value, uh, so many golden nuggets for you guys to take away in your relationships, both romantically and just your friends in your life. I thank you guys for the continued support. I hope you enjoy this episode with Adam Lane Smith. Let's go. Adam, welcome to the My Fit Podcast. Hi, thanks, man. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I've got into so much of your content. Before we get into all that, we have a bunch of questions, a bunch of stuff to get into. But before we do, I want to ask the typical question of what's your resume? What's your background? Usually I give that in the intro myself, but I don't want to mess up any of the verbiage or any of the things that go along with your incredibly impressive resume. So for the people that don't know you, can we talk a little bit about who's Adam Smith? Absolutely. So I'm Adam Lane Smith. I have to go by Lane in the middle because when you write a book, you do not want to be Adam Smith and write a book because the first 3,000 results are this old dead guy who wrote about money. So Adam Lane Smith is me. Um, I am currently an attachment specialist. Before this, I was a licensed marriage and family therapist. Before that, oh man, I've done so many jobs, so many jobs. Um, first question, people ask, why am I not licensed anymore? Because when you are licensed, you can only be licensed in one state or maybe a couple states, but whatever state you are licensed in, you can only do treatment for people in that state. No coaching because it's treated like therapy, nothing else. So I had so many people after I wrote my books, after I started my, my YouTube channel, did all kinds of stuff. So many people begging, please, can we do teletherapy? Nobody will ever know. I will never tell your licensing board. You never want to hear that or take that deal. And then people internationally, can you please do therapy for me? Please work with me. And I had to turn down so many people. It, it got ridiculous. So I finally decided it was time to resign my license. And I had to create my own job title, which is attachment specialist, because it's just what I've come to do. Um, to be a therapist, I always want to know my credentials. It's a six or seven year program for a master's degree. I did it in six. The emphasis for my master's degree in psychology was marriage and family therapy. That does not mean I only treat couples. It actually means I mostly treat individuals. But the difference with a marriage and family therapy license is that it's systemic. It looks at a person and says, there are problems in your environment. There are problems in the environment you grew up in. You have adapted to those problems. Let's get your brain changing your environment and changing how it relates to your environment and your mental health will get better. It's, it's a systemic view. It's an environment view versus a medical view. You have a disease. We need to fix you. It's probably going to take medication. A lot of th- some other therapy licenses are that way. So I'm systemic. I say, there was a problem here. What's the problem? What have you adapted to and how do we fix that? Which led me through that master's degree program through three years of apprenticeship then under six different clinicians with four different licensure types. All of that nine-year process to become a licensed marriage and family therapist, and then to specialize in traumas. First, I started looking at trauma and saying, you know, how does trauma impact people? These bad events, it's clearly causing a problem. This is the big one we can look at. But I, in school and then my apprenticeship, I would say, hey, there's this thing called attachment in here. There's this thing called attachment that we can only diagnose in small children. Can we apply that to adults? And the answer was no. Nope. The guidance says no, attachment does not matter for adults. Attachment disorders do not matter for adults. You cannot diagnose adults with any kind of attachment issue at all. If it is an attachment problem in a small child, only a doctor can assess it 
and it only means a specific thing, and it only is a problem if it's these specific severe disorders, and it will always grow into a conduct disorder where it's like a defiant kid or, or a gangster kid, and it will always then grow into a personality disorder, and that is where you will diagnose it as a personality disorder. If they don't have a full diagnosed personality disorder, they do not have attachment problems. That was the answer I was given through school and, and through apprenticeship and through talking to other people. And I, I will say, thank goodness, some of the people I apprenticed under were very iffy on that and said, and they'd say, you know, the guidance says this, but if that's, if that's what your gut is telling you, then just keep it in your mind that they have this you know, reactive attachment issue that, that you can't diagnose them with. From there, once I jumped out of the system, I said, I don't have to worry about diagnosing anymore. So now I can talk about attachment as an adult problem. I wrote my books before that attachment. There's, there's other people talking about attachment. Most people ask me, what is attachment? I'm going to be talking about that a lot. Attachment is the way one human being gives and receives love. That's really what it boils down to. Attachment is the way that you give and receive love. And that can be broken. A lot of people have broken attachment. And people say, "Does that? are you talking about attachment styles? Attachment styles are different ways that a person's attachment can be broken. Uh, there's, I, th I think the first line of that book, Anna Karenina, is happy families all look the same. Broken families are each broken in their own unique way. It's kind of like, that's how attachment, they're really talking about attachment. Their healthy attachment looks more or less the same, different expressions a little bit based on the individuals, but there's one general way to have good attachment and lots of ways to have bad attachment. So from that, from those humble beginnings, I then worked in in-home treatments for, for people as I was licensed in-home. Uh, actually, that was pre-licensed during my apprenticeship period. Um, in-home treatment for people, I'd go in and talk to them, and they would be disabled due to severe mental health problems. Some of them hadn't left their home in years. Some of them had become total shut-ins. It, 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 was, it was brutal. Just about every medical diagnosis you can think of tacked on to mental health problems all kinds of problems. And what I noticed was attachment, attachment, attachment really ruled the day on almost almost all of those cases. So I'd come in at ground zero and help them rebuild from step zero to build a functioning life within a year or two, a life that they could live again and enjoy their life and fulfill some kind of purpose. Every step in between. So an instruction manual for, for living that they had never received. From there, a little actually back up before that, I did correctional treatments. Uh, one of the worst county correctional facilities, one of the worst jails in the United States, violent, violent death penalty offenders, people who'd mutilated their own children, people who had tried to burn their spouse to death, people who, uh, multiple murders, multiple murders. When I work with a client now, I always say, hey, as long as you have killed less than 10 people, you and I will be fine. Don't worry about me judging you. Keep it under 10 while we're working together. <laughs> but, you know, over 10, we'll, uh, case by case basis, we'll discuss it. Um, they would lock me, the, the, the guards would just, they'd put me in a, in a room. They'd have 16 inmates walk in and I'd they'd say, all right, teach these guys about mental health for an hour. We'll be back. And they'd lock the door and walk away. And I'd be in there with 16 and 16, like violent death of the death penalty offender kind of cases and, and not bad people. Generally, that sounds weird to say, but generally not bad people people with bad circumstances who had made bad choices. And almost all of the guys I worked with in that jail and women too, severe attachment problems. As I'm looking back, severe attachment problems. And then I got what was considered a plush, cushy job in an office. There were no bars on the windows, no inmates <laughs> locked in with me, no armed guards posted outside my door. 
Uh, I had a nice cushy little closet of an office and people would come in and talk to me about problems. And, and I would say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking there's more here. You, you almost have trauma, but it's not trauma. It's not PTSD. You don't qualify for that, but you're acting like it. It's like your brain thinks you have PTSD. It, where are we coming from on this? And we would tease it out and dig. And it came down to relationships and their brain saying, nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. There's something wrong with me deep down on the inside. Everybody else can see, but I, I don't know what it is. So I can't let it out. I can't show it. I'm going to always be anxious all the time to keep control of myself, to try to make sure bad things don't happen to me. All I can do is worry. I can't trust anybody. And it would, they would act like post-traumatic stress disorder without any traumatic events. And I started saying, okay, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. So when I resigned my license, 100% straight up attachment. My specialty has always been severe traumas and attachment and how they kind of interweave as I'm looking back and redefining that. Uh, my clinical director would give me the hardest cases that other therapists were scared to take, intimidated to take. How are we going to help this person? There's no, I don't know. I've Schooling didn't cover this. What are we doing? And they'd send them to me and that person would say, Adam, I've had four therapists. I don't think you can help me. And after one hour, they'd walk out saying, I have never felt so much hope. We're going to get this done. A month later, two months later, they start putting their life back together. Once you get the pieces and you know what you're looking for, it changes the whole game. So I say all of that attachment, 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 giving and receiving love is the core of the human experience. And when that's broken, everything's broken. So I feel like I've talked at you a lot. <laughs> that's my I'm credentials. Here. That's awesome. me and where I come from. I'm here to listen, man. I love this stuff. So if we dive <laughs> even deeper into attachment, I would imagine that, especially from a therapy sort of mindset, a lot of it comes back to childhood. Talk to me a little bit about what determines attachment health. Is it from a child? Is it is it from early stages? Does it change or develop in later stages? What are the biggest determinants of attachment health? Yeah. So the human species, we as Homo sapiens, have been on this planet for two hundred thousand years, approximately, and we have had nice, plush, cushy industrial revolution, information age, and we've had this industrial revolution was two hundred fifty years ago. Information age was just what a handful of years ago, a couple decades ago at most, depending on where you want to start. It's our our brains are meant for old old stuff. They're meant for survival in the wilderness. And a little child's brain, if they're one, if they're two, they're three. If mom and dad are like they are today, they're tired all the time and don't have energy to put in that kid. If their mom and dad are depressed, if dad leaves and is just gone, if you know, any of those things, the kids hurt, abused, problems happen. Nobody seems to care for that child. Nobody is warm and nurturing. The environment seems super tense. That child's brain says, I could be abandoned at any moment. People don't have time for me. If I get abandoned, I will die 200,000 years ago for the first 200,000 years of our experience. I will die. So I have to make sure people don't disapprove of me. And when you're that little, I've got four kids. When your kid throws a toy and then the TV over here changes channel to, to a different video. They think, Oh, I changed that. That was me. They, their brain thinks they are the origin, the cause of every effect. It's so that they can kind of figure out cause and effect relationships, but their brain is so self-centered. It says, I'm the origin of every effect. I'm always the cause. So when dad leaves and doesn't come around, when mom gets mad, when mom doesn't have time for me, when dad hits me, when mom screams at me every day, when mom leaves and leaves me with strangers, daycare, and especially as a young age, and I have to compete with strangers. 
strangers all day. And then mom comes home and barely has time for me and, and spends like two hours a day with me most days instead of 24 hours a day with me, like children would for the first 200,000 years of our life. That must mean there's something wrong with me that makes these people act this way. There's something wrong with me that everybody can see on the inside of me, but I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. So it's always dangerous to open up and let anybody see that. Daycare it, can do this. What does it look like? Sorry. What does it look like in later years? Teenagers, 20s. Yeah. Attachment, so, like so the little child's brain, whenever they learn this, and, and it can happen from trauma events too, not just the parents, but mostly the parents. It can happen from other events, but the brain starts saying, I have to cover up my imperfections. I have to act perfect. I have to be good. I have to make everybody like me. And I have to worry all the time because nobody is going to help me. I have to just be perfect because one slip could ruin it all and I could die. And the brain welds that in with the limbic system. I could die if all these little imperfections, all these little, you know, I'm a fraud kind of things. Then they become anxious and the brain says, oh, I made a mistake. Oh no, I almost died. I have to worry more. And it clicks the worry up, clicks the click, 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 click till you're running at like seven out of 10 worry all the time. And what happens is your brain has two different hemispheres. You've got the left brain, basically almost different brains, the logical brain on the left and the, the emotional brain on the right. And there's not enough energy to fuel emotional storms without draining some off the logical brain. So you go like this. And if you're always anxious, you are running at a logical deficit. So your decisions are made based on maximizing your pleasure and minimizing your pain for the next five seconds over on this brain, not for long-term thinking, living your principles, living your goals. It's fear-based thinking that does all your, especially relationship decisions for you. And then your logic's diminished. It's harder to focus on grades. It's hard to get uh, focus on you know your attention on on tasks. It's harder to not. You're, you're restless. You're you're jumping all over the the, the ADD and ADHD epidemic that happened you know 20, 30 years ago and is still going on. Where one in seven little boys in America is medicated for ADHD. Yeah. It looks a lot like that. ADHD is a big piece. It can also with some kids. Um, with some kids, it can look like oppositional defiant disorder. It can look like if nobody's going to love me and people are going to hurt me, then screw them. I'm going to take control. A very small subset of kids seem to get that. Um, I've, I've been wondering, and I've been doing some research with the MAOA gene, which is a lot more of like an aggressive gene. They call it the warrior gene or the criminal gene. It, it does a few things, but it seems to, it seems to lead to a little bit more dominance and dominance fighting. Um, and I'm wondering if that may map onto some of that. I don't know. I don't have the papers to prove that, but it's just kind of a hypothesis I've been working on lately. If that's the, the, the oppositional defiant disorder kids instead of, um, the anxious attachment kids. And then you've got kids with autism and pieces like that who don't say there's something wrong with me, but there's something wrong with everybody in the world. And they start doing it that way. And, and I don't understand and nobody understands me and they, they develop many of the same attachment anxieties. Um, all of this, that's late, late childhood. Eventually you reach a point where the brain says, I've been worrying, I've been fighting, I've been doing all of this all this time, and it's never worked. It's hopeless. I feel helpless and powerless. No one's going to help me. And mid-teens, 14, 15, 16, a lot of times they, they kick over from anxiety into a huge rise of depression, huge rise of depression. You see a lot of teenage depression around that time. Um, later on, if, if the traumas were severe enough, they might develop panic attacks later on in, in late teens, um, mid to late teens, sometimes early twenties. I will see a lot of people then go into full blown, uh, manic episodes. I worked, I was very blessed early in my career to work with a doctor who prescribed medication to children. 
uh, and, and worked in a group home and things like that, or would actually cycle between group homes, would absolutely refuse to medicate any child under 18 for bipolar disorder, um, which you're kind of not supposed to anyway, but he absolutely refused because he would say, this is serving a purpose. These manic episodes are distracting this child from the pain that they're experiencing. I've seen people when, when their brain goes that hard and that anxious and, and that frantic all the time, they either reach a point where they can never be happy, never do the things that make them happy, never do the things that make them glad. And then they reach a point where they're either, sometimes they have a seizure and I've seen people with these go into a seizure or they have a manic episode where the brain clicks off, chemically clicks off that prefrontal cortex and says, let's not worry about judgment and decision-making for a while. Let's do what feels good. And it saturates itself in things that make the brain feel really good. And then they come out of it and say, oh no, what have I done? And it's every, not not only are there consequences for the actions, but now everybody sees I am garbage. Everybody sees I'm worthless. The attachment pieces also dogpile in, plunge into depression. Um, I've seen that work. I'm not saying all bipolar is just behavioral, but there seems to be a very strong behavioral piece. When I treated people with bipolar, according to my attachment model, I, I saw people total reduction in manic episodes down to maybe one a year, even without medication. And that one was very small. It was a lot more like hypomanic where they'd go up for a day or two and then catch it and then come back down. Um, not, again, not saying every case, but I, I have seen that personally myself in a number of cases. And, and so have some other clinicians who I've been talking to about this. So that's what it typically looks like. A lot of anxiety. And then you get relationships and it's, I can never be honest. I can never show you who I am. I have to be nice. I have to earn your approval because you'll never really love me, but you'll approve of me if I do X, Y, and Z all the time. And I will earn the things I want from you by doing nice things and building secret, secret things in so that you will be so grateful. You'll just throw those nice things at me. And that's how we will live our life is just trading back and forth secretly, but never getting too close. Mm-hmm. And then you got to connect with people who have problems because they won't get too close. And the more problems they have, the more you can help them with things. It's like an endless buffet. You just constantly help them with problems. And then you build this cycle where you can never connect to open, honest, healthy people because they would challenge you and terrify you and try to get in too close and figure out who you are. So they scare you and they kind of bore you because you don't know you know how to connect with them and they're unfamiliar. So you keep healthy people away and they kind of keep you away because you're unstable. But then you just pull in all the unhealthy people all the time. You're like, oh, you seem really horrible. Come into my life and be here with me forever. Move into my house. I just met you this afternoon. It'll be great. And then you build this self-sustaining, self-biased network, self-fulfilling network of, man, everyone in the world is messed up. Everyone is this bad, but I am the only one that secretly deep down on the inside has these horrible problems and everybody in the world is really better than I am. And I have to keep doing this system. And, and it's that belief that there is no better way. There's no way out because the brain is shifted illogically to the emotional side. Um, it's formed a, a permanent belief uh, it's like a, a law of the universe. Gravity makes things fall down. Water is wet. And I'm an unlovable piece of garbage that nobody would ever accept if they really knew me. That's, that's the foundational belief. So you don't even question it. And you get into relationships and you tear them apart with your secret resentments, with people not fulfilling your wishes because you fight tooth and nail to make sure they never know what they are. And it's, it's ugly. That's, that's what this tends to look like. It's pretty bad. <laughs> I want to get into the relationship side of things. And I think it interests me the most too, because I'm going to be getting married in the fall. And so some of the stuff is really, um, I don't know, it resonates with me. It's very timely. So it's, 
it's interesting. And I want to know a little bit about for people that are in relationships, whether they're married or not married, we're talking about defining attachment. What does attachment look like? Healthy attachment, unhealthy attachment. I'm thinking of somebody listening in their car right now, Adam, who's like, they've never heard of this stuff before. And they're thinking, well, I wonder if I have a healthy attachment or an unhealthy attachment. What do you think are some, I don't know, what are some key things that you could tell somebody, hey, if you do this, then you probably have an unhealthy detachment. If you do this, you know what I'm saying? I will, I will show you. I will do better than that. I will show you in the next three to four minutes. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine you have the perfect partner. Hopefully it's the one you're going to marry. <laughs> if not, don't say anything. Um, imagine, imagine you have the perfect partner. She's perfect. When she wants something from you, she very calmly, very lovingly just asks, just says, hey, you know what? This would mean a lot to me. Could you do this for me, please? This would be great. Doesn't stomp her foot, doesn't demand, just, hey, this would be great. Could you please do this? Very clear. When you do something she doesn't like, she tells you right away the first time uh, gently and says, hey, you know what? I don't really like that, but it's okay because you didn't know. Could you please do this instead? This would be great. A very clear roadmap to what she does want. So you're not embarrassed. You only did it one time. You didn't know. She soothes it right over and then gives you exactly what to do. And when you do what she does like, she is just thankful. She says, thank you so much. That was great. Here's why that was so awesome. When you give her a gift, she's just genuinely happy. You always know where she's at. You always know what she's thinking. And you always know what she wants from you and, and where you are. If you're doing it right, you know it. And you can be confident that you know it. So open your eyes and answer me three questions. Do you feel like that person trusts you? Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Once in a while, I get people that say no, and they say that person wants something. They're trying to get something from me. <laughs> that attachment can lead to that answer sometimes. Um, yes, they trust you. They absolutely trust you because they're being honest with you. They're being vulnerable. They're opening up and showing who they are, and they could be hurt, but they're choosing to trust instead. Would you feel if you got all that feedback and you always knew you were doing right, and if you weren't doing right, you'd get told, and then you would get told how to fix it and then get feedback that you had fixed it? Would you feel like a pretty good partner? I would. And I'm very solution oriented. So I like, <laughs> I like being told what to do. And yes. I, like, yeah, I, like, I, I, want, I want to hear more rather than less. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> you would feel your confidence would go up, your self-esteem would go up. You'd, you'd, you'd walk with a pep in your step. It would be pretty great. Um, would you feel like that relationship was pretty secure? Like it would last a long time? Absolutely. Good. Because it would. You would see problems coming a mile away. Absolutely. That is healthy attachment. When I say there's only one way to have healthy attachment, that's what it is, is being clear, being open, being honest with what you want, honest with what you don't want, being glad when you get rewards, being glad and, and just grateful and kind and working together as a team to solve problems instead of saying, hey, you need to do that. You need to do that. It's, hey, you know what? I didn't like this, but that's okay. Could you do this instead? It's, it's clear solutions right on the surface. So everything's easy for everybody. That is healthy attachment. Now I'm going to show you unhealthy attachment. Close your eyes and let's do this. There we go. I want you. Uh huh. Uh huh. I want you to imagine you have the worst partner in the world. She does not ask for what she wants. You have to guess. You have to guess. And if you get it right, and you're too aggressive about asking, hey, is this what you want? She'll get upset and scared and say, oh, oh no, no. I mean, that's no big deal. I was just joking. No, I don't need that. That's okay. You never know. You never know what she's wanting and you have to constantly guess. And it's you, you have to, the burdens on you. And if you miss it, or if you do something she doesn't like, she won't tell you right away. She might even pretend it's okay. Like, no, yeah, that was great. No, oh, Hey, that was fantastic. No, don't worry about it. No big deal. 
and you won't know until she has a bad day three, four, five months later, and you've done it 10 times because you thought she liked it. And all of a sudden, I've never liked that. How could you do this? Why are you doing this to me? Why don't you love me? Don't you know how much I don't like that? Couldn't you guess? You should know by now. You should know me. And you never know when that's coming because there's always another one of those coming. And it's always a long list of things you had no idea was a problem. And when you do something she likes, you get it right. It becomes a debt. It's a burden. Why did you do this? You didn't have to do that. How am I going to pay you back? No. And she doesn't really just stop and enjoy it. It turns into a panic. So you're being kind of punished for even doing it right. You never know when the next explosion is coming. You never know what she actually wants. She doesn't work with you to show you. And if you get it right, you're going to be punished. Now, open your eyes and answer me these three questions. Does that person trust you? No. Would you feel confident, like a good partner, no. good self-esteem? No, you'd feel terrible. Yeah. Even if you walked into this with good attachment, you'd come out feeling horrible. Would you feel like that relationship was nice and stable and was going to last a good long time? No chance. No. It would either end in five minutes or you'd be stuck in a living hell until right. you decide right. to end it all. Yeah. A lot of people go to suicide there because they can't figure out how to end it, unfortunately. Um, that is the difference. That is the difference. And notice the second person. I didn't say that they were malicious. I didn't say that they were nasty, vindictive, or, or manipulative. All I said was they, they don't share what they would need. They have bad days and they blow up at you. But they try to be nice and, and not make a problem and not say that, hey, you know, you, you, you don't have to do that. Don't worry about it. And they, when you do something nice for them, they start trying to pay it back immediately. Those aren't evil behaviors. But they're broken behaviors and they're hurtful, they're wounding, and they rob you of the chance to feel trusted. They rob you of the chance to feel secure, to feel confident, to feel stable. They rob you of that. Now, the bad news is that if you have attachment issues, you probably have been the bad partner in your relationships because you're robbing your partner at least of the chance to feel trusted, confident, and stable and secure. You're robbing them of that. That's what attachment does. And that's why it's hard for healthy people to be coupled up or even just be friends with unhealthy people because they're being robbed of that opportunity all the time. That's why healthy people will kind of know you and then they'll ghost you and drift away because you're doing that to them. But you no, don't have to. The word that comes, the word, sorry, the word that comes up a lot there, the word that comes to my mind when I hear this, Adam, is the word vulnerability. And mm -hmm. I, I went mm -hmm. back to some of your tweets that are also popular and um, one of them that says women tend to be happiest when they feel useful to the people they love. They also want to feel trusted with inside information about how you're doing and what your challenges are again, so they can help and be useful. Vulnerability indicates huge trust. So what is vulnerability? If you want stronger marriage and a better sex life, learn to share your problems, state your feelings, explain your solution and ask for feedback. This is the secret to making your wife feel loved, respected, and useful. Tell me a little bit about that and then also where vulnerability fits in. And then maybe also too, why do, and I don't want to make this a sexist thing or gender thing, so I'm sure it goes both ways, but maybe why do men struggle so much with vulnerability? Mm -hmm. So men struggle so much with vulnerability. I can answer that right off the bat because they have no idea what it is and what it's supposed to be. And when you say, hey, men have emotional intimacy, they'll say, what the heck is that? And women, even if they don't have a definition for it, will be like, yes, emotional intimacy. <laughs> because no, they, they do. They are so yeah. women typically, most, most neurotypical women 
are intuitive in relationships and they're, they're relationally intuitive. Men typically are not relationally intuitive and especially the more left shifted they become, not, not to necessarily like the full autism spectrum disorder, but the more left shifted a man is toward more logical thinking by default, the less emotionally intuitive he will be anyway. Um, autism is often called a hyper-masculinization of the brain. It's shifting away from those relational intuitive pieces toward logical systems instead. That is why women, number one, understand emotional intimacy typically so much more, but also because emotional intimacy is the key driving factor for the female sex drive after the honeymoon phase of dating is over or the, or the relationship is over. Once you settle into long-term, it is entirely built almost entirely built on emotional intimacy because 200,000 years ago, even a hundred thousand years ago, even a thousand years ago, even a hundred years ago, all of our 200,000 years, if a woman had sex, she was probably going to get pregnant and she needed to rely for 200,000 years on a man's ability to stay around, to protect, to provide, and to be a good father and raise those children. And if he was not, if emotional intimacy was low, he could leave her for the next young woman who walked by and her and her children would die. And we now, in the last 60 years, women don't have to rely on that, but 60 years versus 200,000 years, which one do you think her brain is adapted to? Long term. It's the big one. So emotional intimacy determines this, the health and warmth and love and stability of a relationship long term after the first seven months, eight months, 10 months. After that first year, especially, emotional intimacy is huge. Now, vulnerability then leads to emotional intimacy because it's trust. You're opening up and risking and showing. When I tell men be vulnerable, they picture themselves sobbing on the floor in a puddle saying, oh, I'm so pathetic. And the woman like looking down on him and spitting on him because he's so weak. And that's absolutely not what I'm indicating at all. Vulnerability is opening up and showing that you have a weakness inside your armor. And for men, this looks like saying, I have an issue I need to solve. Like, like, like I'd said in that very smart quote, I sound pretty smart in those written quotes. You are smart. Open man. up and say, yeah, well, thank you. I try <laughs> on my good days. Um, I open, you open up and say, I'm having this issue. Here's what I feel about it. It's making me frustrated. Here's what I think I'm going to do about it. You wife or, or girlfriend or whomever. Give me some insight on this. What am I missing here? Before I do this solution that I'm going to do, because men, our brains, we front to back, observe, act, observe, act. We like that. And when we get stuck and we can't act, then we start getting depressed and unhappy. But observe, act, stop, pause, observe. And then the action should be get some counsel and make sure go to her on purpose and say, what am I missing here? What insights am I missing? And their brains, females' brains tend to go back and forth more than ours do. Ours go front to back more than theirs do. Theirs goes side to side, which means way more connections, interconnectedness. Um, their brains are about two-thirds the size of the male brain, but a lot faster, rapid connections. So they can think about 18 things at the same time and then figure out how they all fit together versus the dude is like, this one thing is bothering me. I'm going to do this. Oh, no. What are these consequences? Where are they coming from? Female brain will map out all those consequences in advance, especially as they, in, as they hit relationships. So you go and you say, give me your insight, give me your feedback. And what happens is a couple of things. Number one, you're opening up and showing her who you are. You're showing her that you trust her. You're making her feel useful to you in a good, loving way. You're making her feel secure. You're making her feel stable. 
And women know that they're not always going to be young and hot. They know that eventually they'll be like 50, 60, 70 years old. The wrinkles will set in. They won't be as young and hot. Some women are, are still, you know, some women are still beautiful at that age, but they're not 20 years old. <laughs> they're not going to look like they were when they are 20. They need a way to compete with, with other women who are 20 years old for this specific man's attention and for his time and, and his love and his warmth and his resources and all the stuff for 200,000 years that kept women alive. So doing this tells her, I don't just value your body. I value your mind, your wisdom, your experience, your thoughtfulness, your insights. You are a valuable person to me and a valuable, useful part of my internal decision-making of my processes, my, my thinking. I, I would love to have you in here as an advisor for the rest of my life. I value you. That right there, the trust, the openness, the stability, and then I value you long-term and we will be together. She will become more valuable then as she ages instead of less valuable as her body turns to wrinkly, as like we all do. We all end up looking like wrinkly, fat little babies in the end, typically. All of us. Just do. She will become more valuable with wisdom, knowledge, care, insight, experience. She will gain more value to you, and no woman will ever threaten her position at your side. That's mentally that that people always ask, "Where's the female Viagra?" That is female Viagra. That emotional intimacy past the first year that ramps up the sex drive when she feels that loved, that connected, that useful, that stable, that secure, that valued, that trusted, that cherished. Whatever words you want to use, all of them. That is what builds the female sex drive and end up like jungle predator overdrive or anything where you're fighting her off with a stick. Guys do. And, and when you do this genuinely, sex is amazing for the next 40, 70 years. You will be two old wrinkled fat babies at 70 years old, still going better than 20 years old. So it's just kind of the way it works. Um, sorry for that image. But that that is emotional intimacy. That is it. And that's why it's intuitive for women. And that's why it's crucial for relationships, but men value, men benefit from it so much because it will help your learning process. It will help your thinking process, your decision process. You'll get input that you normally wouldn't have. Your solutions will get better and you will form vasopressin bonds through stress bonding by solving problems together with this other person. You will start bonding to her by solving those problems together and it will make you like her more. It will make you feel closer to her. It will make you, it'll open the doors then for oxytocin bonding, for physical non-stress bonding, for talking, for sharing you, your guard will come down. Your brain won't be worried all the time. You won't be in defensive mode. You will know you have a team and then you can do that bonding with your buddies, with your family, your sister, your aunt, whoever it is. And you bond and bond and bond, solve problems together and, and build a little bit of vulnerability. And then you realize it's not a big deal to be vulnerable as long as you're focused on a solution. If you're vulnerable and just crying, yeah, that's a problem. But if you're vulnerable and focused on a solution, you are solving problems together, building trust, building bonds, improving attachment, building intimacy, having emotional intimacy with the people in your life. And that emotional intimacy is where life quality really comes from. I've worked with so many people. I've worked with so many people in their 60s, like millionaires in their 60s, and they say, I have nothing. I have eight houses. I have a yacht, I have five mistresses, I have all this stuff, but I have nothing because there, I am, there's nobody to share any of this with. I have no real legacy. I have no people that I've connected with and, and built human impacts with. I have nothing. And I'm going to live my last 20 years alone with all this wealth. What am I going to do? 
Emotional intimacy is the defining factor. It's why poor people often tend to be happier than rich people because they have to. They're crammed into you know a tiny space. They can't hide things from each other, so their attachment gets better typically. And they have to. They have to work together. They have to build bonds. They have to solve problems together. They have to survive together. If they have some key pieces and can build good attachment, they will be happier together than a rich person who is alone. I have a follow-up that's going to require a little bit of vulnerability from me, but I'm curious to hear some wisdom on you and on your part. When I, one thing I struggle with, Adam, is, is becoming vulnerable with my fiance or you know, mm-hmm. almost bringing that to the table because my thought, Adam, is I don't want to, we have this very positive, uplifting environment. Everything is going great. When I bring my problems, quote unquote, to the conversation, to the table, I know it's just going to kind of bring the vibe down a little bit. And I don't really want to do that. I don't want to be a burden, if you will. I think that's a pretty deep mm-hmm. word. I'm not sure if I totally believe that when I say that, but why would I, why, how could I do a better job, loaded question, of bringing in some of the vulnerabilities, some of the issues without being like, I don't know if appearing weak is the right word, but I just don't want to bring mm-hmm. down what's so great. You know, things are great. Why would, I, why would I bring up my issues right now? What are your thoughts? That phrasing you used right there, be a burden and appear weak. Those are the two things that stop men from doing this because being weak and having a bur- and being a burden rips open who you are and says, I am a burden and I am weak and everybody should spit on me and abandon me right now out of the pool. And the, the fear is that she will either leave you on the spot or will pity you and stay with you out of pity. I will tolerate him. I will put up with him. Fine. I guess we'll do this. Let me ask you this. The good partner, bad partner thing we did earlier. If a good partner came to you with a problem and said, I want to solve this problem with you. Would you think that person was being a burden or was being weak? Um, No, absolutely not. No. If they came to you on a good day when it was fun. And at the end of that good day, they came and said, you know, I need to talk to you about something and it's not really fun. It might be bring the vibe down. Is that okay? Would you be mad that they brought the vibe down? Mm-mm. Would they have ruined the day if they came to you and told you that truth? Mm-mm. Would the, you, would you be miserable and just pity them and say, fine, I guess we'll ruin the day together so that you can be happy. Mm-mm. Would you be glad that they came to you and were honest? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, would that maybe cap off a good day and say, okay, now we're going to have kind of a tough talk, but we're going to bond closer as we solve the problem together. Mm. That would enhance a good day. Right. Would you expect that person to come to you every single day with horrible problems and, and always bring down the vibe? Or would it probably be once in a while and trend toward getting better and better and better as you solve problems together? Right. The latter. Yeah. So do you have such horrific nightmare problems that you need to spend every day for the rest of your life? making that other person deal with your bad problems? Or is it like, Hey, let's do this and let's get through this together and then we'll be better for it. Yeah, no, of course. I think it's more, I think it's almost more like sometimes I put it, um, just getting really personal, I guess, but I, I mm-hmm. feel like it's my job to make sure everybody around me is doing well. And I've kind of been that <laughs> way, even in like high school, like I was kind of like, I don't know if it's the class clown, but I just want to make sure everybody, all my friends, everybody's having a good time. And so in my house, I'm the same way. I want to make sure everybody's doing well, having a good time. And if I bring my crap to the table, that could make the vibe or make people not have a good time. So that that's kind of my thought process of, you know what, maybe it's not worth it. If they don't have a good time, what are you afraid will happen? 
I don't know if I'm afraid of anything happening. I just really, I just have this thing about me that I just want everybody around me to be having a good time and being happy. And that's not a bad thing. Okay. The problem comes when you believe that everybody's connection to you is only related to the feelings they're experiencing for you at that moment. If it's built on everybody will have a good time, so they will love me. If it's built on everybody will have a good time, so they won't see what's wrong with me. If it's built on this is how I earn love, sure. it may not even be, like you said, afraid that if they're not having a good time, it, something bad will happen. But if they're not having a good time, maybe nothing good will happen. Maybe this is the only time the doors are opened for you to get love and feel loved. Maybe it's the only time you can feel like a good person. I feel like I'm calling you out here. Sorry for that. But maybe it's that that's the only service you know how to provide to show other people that you love them. Maybe lacking emotional intimacy, the only thing you can do is give them good feelings. Building in emotional intimacy means you can give them those warm feelings without having to worry how they feel all the time because you will trend their feelings positively all the time because they have emotional intimacy with you. They'll feel safer, more trusted, more secure, and that will raise the, the, the spike of anxiety that diminishes their logic will balance out like this because they'll be in a safe environment. I, I often work with couples. Um, or I have in the past, I should say, I don't coach couples anymore just because I, I don't do the fighting in the sessions anymore, it really interrupts it. Um, but I, I work with a, I've worked with a lot of couples. And what I have noticed is that when men step up and create more stability and more emotional intimacy, women's anxiety in the relationship tends to decrease, tends to. Now, the, sometimes their anxieties will increase in a way if they haven't fixed their attachment problems because now they're afraid that he's an even higher value man and she's getting ready to be abandoned. But if she fixes her attachment issues and he provides emotional stability, women's latent anxiety daily can crash from seven out of 10 all the time to zero out of 10 most days because he is now providing emotional stability and she is not afraid of being abandoned. So she can be calm. She knows that like every decision isn't life or death. By building that emotional intimacy, you are decreasing their anxiety typically. And it tends to work for men too. It doesn't seem to work as much where if the woman does it, he does it. For men, it seems like more of an internal process. I often say that women are reactive to their environment to stay alive and men are more active in their environment. And it kind of goes back to how our brains, theirs go side to side, ours go front to back. We like to act, 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 and, and women like to process and, and analyze and then react carefully, um, typically. Again, most neurotypicals. But the best thing a man can do in a relationship with a woman to decrease her anxiety and her stress is to fix his attachment and build emotional intimacy with her. And that, that so often, so often improves her mental health. That's one of the best gifts you can give. So when you talk about being a burden, when you talk about appearing weak, when you talk about that fear, dragging people down, ruin the vibe, no, it does the opposite. Mm -hmm. It does the opposite. Very cool. So we talked about uh, attachments, what it looks like, where it comes from. Uh, I, I would like to, if we could talk about how we can fix some of this. I think some of the people listening are like, <laughs> oh my God, is this, can I get out of this? And you uh, wrote an awesome book called Slaying Your Fear. I'll put that in the show notes. And I, I read Thank it. Uh, I went through it twice. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. There's so many nuggets in there. And you talk about some different ways that we can uh, fix it. If you would, would you go through uh, maybe a couple of your favorite ways to go about fixing? Absolutely. So the biggest thing is opening up and showing other people and experiencing their love and acceptance and doing that over and over. 
That really is the process in a nutshell. Opening up, revealing that you're anxious, revealing that you have these anxious behaviors and seeking approval, getting approval from other people, sharing your needs, having them met, experiencing love. That's it. It's that simple. Just go do that. <laughs> but, but the problem comes in is your limbic system has welded disapproval and exposure and vulnerability to death. So your brain will say, I will make up any excuse I possibly can not to do that. I'm just here to make everybody happy. I, if I do that, I'll bring down the vibe. I'm a burden. Nobody wants to hear that. It's not the right day. Oh, I don't know. The wind is too strong. I better not reveal how I feel. The brain will come up with any reason. And if barring that, it will just make you have a panic attack to stop you from opening up and sharing it. And then you sound like a crazy person because you're like, hey, I want to talk to you about nothing. And then you jump out the window. And it's like halfway through, you start panicking and you're done. And you just can't have that conversation. You want to, and you think about it over and over and over and over. The steps are really deep dive, resolve your anxieties, or at least diminish them to a point where you can deal with them. So that typically comes in. Sometimes medication can be effective. It's not the first thing I want to use. I want to, I want to run for. It's diminishing anxiety through prolonged physical discomfort, usually. Um, intense yoga. People love hot yoga for this reason. Runner's high. Once you hit that endurance phase, lifting, once you hit that endurance phase and then push anyway, it diminishes that emotional brain. Um, a harmful way I do not recommend is like um, teenagers often will self-mutilate, will cut or burn, things like that. What they're doing is the brain says, whoa, something's going wrong with my body. I better focus on that and, and, and give my logic back. So it diminishes the emotional brain, full logic response. And then because that is diminished, you get like some, some endorphins, some dopamine, you feel good all of a sudden. And then the brain says, wow, whatever happened, it was great. And so it likes the self-mutilation. Um, you can get that same effect with, with like progressive muscle relaxation, especially if it's a tensing and relaxing piece. Um, like I said, yoga, tai chi, a lot of physical pieces. Once you hit that endurance part, the brain starts actively diminishing the emotional response. You can do that in advance. That can decrease your anxiety piece. You'll start getting better sleep. It will be easier to have those tough conversations. Then you go to somebody and say, you have what I, what I call the, I am an, I'm an anxious person speech. I'm an anxious person. You may not know this about me, but I, I try to get approval all the time. I kind of cover up how I'm feeling. I'm afraid to ask for my needs to get met. I'm afraid to be honest, but I hate it. And I don't want to do this anymore. Is it okay if we start just being totally honest with each other and build this connection so that we are closer and have a better relationship for the rest of our life? And that takes like eight to 10 seconds. And it'll be the hardest eight to 10 seconds of your life because your brain is screaming at you. Don't do it. We're going to die. And then you do it and within two or three seconds. The person is looking at you and your brain says, wow, they haven't spit on me. They haven't set me on fire. They didn't jump out the window to escape. Like this is going okay. And then it's two to three seconds of terror. And then you just have to get through it and you finish it. And they're like, yeah, duh. I already knew you were an anxious person. You're only fooling yourself. Did you really think I didn't know? And they're like, but I didn't know that about you, that you were thinking that on the inside. I would love to be more honest with you. And your brain's going to say, I don't know how that happened, but they're okay with it. We should never test this or try this again because it was a fluke. And then you do it with a second person. Your brain's saying, don't do it. We're going to die. And then they, they approve of it. They, they accept you. You receive love and acceptance. And the brain says, all right, maybe it's like 50-50. Let's never try it again. And then you do it with a third person. The brain says, hold up. Something's not right. <laughs> I'm wrong. I was wrong. Those, those crazy people that raised me, I'm realizing now that they were truly crazy. That was bad data. I have three good data points, three for three of people that love and accept me. I've opened up and, and shown them like, oh, this is who I am. And they haven't like killed me. They've accepted me. Maybe this is okay. And the brain will start remapping its cognitive pathways toward from terror and limbic system. And I'm going to die to, hey, maybe it's okay. I should have this conversation. 
then it starts to love it loves that little open acceptance you start building vasopressin and oxytocin with these people you start getting dopamine and serotonin from all these conversations and it feels great you feel loved and accepted Two hundred thousand years ago instead of living on the outside of the tribe where the lions and, and bears will eat you and raiders are going to spear you first your brain says wait a minute maybe i'm on the inside of the village maybe i'm safe i'm sheltered People would take care of me if I broke my leg or if I got sick, they'd care for me. People love me. I don't have to earn approval all the time. I'm not walking the razor's edge. So it starts diminishing your fear response all the time. You become calm and relaxed, and then you start testing it. And someone will say something. You say, Ooh, Hey, you know, I don't really like that. Or, Hey, you, I didn't like this thing. Could you do this instead? And you're like, no, I can't. They're, they're going to kill me if I could. And, and they're like, yeah, no problem. And your brain's like, oh, it worked. And then the more you do that, and the more you do that, and the more you do that, it rewires the brain, rewires the brain, rewires the brain, and then gives you positive feedback for, hey, I really like this and becomes super addictive. And then you just do it all the time. And, and this is not like years and years and years. This is like a month if you want to really push it fast. This is a couple of months if you want to kind of take your time. And then over several months, you start remapping, 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 and you feel better than you've ever felt in your life. Your anxieties plummet. A lot of mental health problems go away. Depression starts to go away. Uh, panic attacks diminish, sometimes bipolar disorder, manic episodes and stuff will go away at this point because you don't need it anymore because you're doing what you want and you're getting what you need. So the, the manic episode escapes are no longer beneficial to your brain and addictions start to diminish. I've had people come in addicted to heroin and 30 days later, after fixing their attachment for 30 days, hardcore fixing it, they're like, I don't ever want to go back to heroin. I don't even have cravings. I don't even need it. I feel great without it. I feel better now every day than I ever felt within the middle of heroin and heroin use. I, I like heroin is, is crap compared to this feeling. I feel this. I need to fix this and get this going. And, and 30 days, 30 days. And it's amazing. You will feel amazing. You will feel the way human beings are supposed to feel because this is what we were built for. This is what most humans have experienced for 200,000 years. Our modern system is so busted that it creates broken attachment over and over and over in all of us and then fosters it and then encourages it and keeps us separated. That's how you're supposed to feel. That's why so many of us are in pain. What is pain? It's information that you are in a non-optimized state and you need to reach an optimized state so the pain will go away. We have pain receptors that receive pain when something's wrong and then we fix it. Pain demands a response. So you respond by fixing your attachment, pain goes away. Pain goes away. I've seen physical pain go away. I've seen people with like horrible physical pain that they've been carrying around for mental health problems and stuff like that. I've seen physical chronic pain diminish when they fix their attachment problems. I've seen medical issues get easier to deal with, not, maybe not completely go away, but get so much easier, like 80% easy. Now it's 20% of what it was before. Attachment, dude, when you fix it and you receive that love and acceptance from people, your brain says, ah, this is what I was meant for. And you feel all of a sudden tremendously good. And then everything in life gets easier. Everything in life gets easier. That's how you fix it. There's a part in your book I really enjoyed. And I'd love to hear more about it. It's, it's about fixing fixing it by investing in people rather than outcomes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the outcomes is I want everybody to like me so I don't die. My kid has to become a doctor so that he will, you know, he won't die. Um I have to do X. My wife has to have sex with me tonight in this specific way, or everything is ruined because it's the only thing I want. Attaching to outcomes means I want these things to happen. And what that typically comes from is that attachment, that broken attachment makes us, it makes us act upon other people as if they are objects. It, it activates a different part of our brain 
of I must move these objects to stay alive, right? Because I can't connect with them as human being to human being. So I must move upon move them and act upon them as objects. Not like a full sociopath would, not where you're harming the objects and disregarding them. You still care for them, but you are acting upon them like like playing a video game. You're pushing buttons and trying to get the characters to jump, trying to get the characters to do the things they're supposed to do and achieve a goal. Investing in outcomes is why you get so upset and frustrated all the time. It's why the anxiety is so high because you have to move these objects in the right way to make these outcomes happen. But the objects start keep keep moving on their own and it frustrates you. That's why a lot of people get mad at their kids, yell at their kids, are breaking their, their expectations. This is why. When you fix the attachment, you connect with emotional intimacy, human to human, and you're not acting upon them as objects anymore. It activates the parts of your brain that are responsible for interacting with other people, especially people that you care about. And then you start investing in them and saying, okay, here's what I'd like, but what is the best possible outcome for everybody involved, for you and me? What are the best possible outcomes for us that we can achieve together right now? And you invest in that. And you invest in doing what is best, even if that means breaking off the relationship right now, even if that's what that means, even if it means being honest and risking ruining the relationship, investing in people instead of outcomes, that's the core of all of it. And that's really what attachment allows you to do. Seems like, so one of the phrases we like to use a lot at the gym is uh, process over outcome. And it kind of, res- <laughs> I think maybe that's why it resonated with me because I like to get my clients to think about the day in and the day out, the process, not focusing on their competition or what what's to happen in the future. And it also kind of goes back to this growth mindset versus fixed mindset, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And this idea of we're yes. all, gro- it's growing, it's all together. It's not, it's not concrete and it's not the outcome. I think there's a lot of parallels in those two. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think of it like, um, like, like data nodes. If there's one data node calculating a problem, that one data node is responsible for solving every single problem, and it has a limited amount of processing power. If that data node chooses to connect to other human beings, other, other data nodes, and build out that network, suddenly that data node has 10 times the processing power it had before instead of, instead of where it was. It doesn't have to act upon every other existing data node like their objects. It can work with those other data nodes and has gained a tremendous amount of power and data and information that it can use to now solve new problems and problems it couldn't solve on its own, problems that were impossible on its own. That's what I think of. I think of data nodes doing that. And that's what this process is about, is joining humans together in unity so they can solve problems collectively as a family, as a tribe, as whatever it is, so that they can improve all of their lives together and get better outcomes, but they're not focused on the outcomes. They're focused on, like you said, the process, the relationships. I think a lot of this conversation too, Adam, comes back to self-respect. And that's the one of the first chapters of the book is people, you know, do you respect yourself? And if you don't, this is going to be... It might take a long time because if you don't respect yourself, how are we going to have healthy attachment in this relationship? And I am guessing you could go for hours just on self-respect, but talk to me a little about if you agree, if that's the genesis of this whole thing, how does, how does somebody improve their self-respect? Because that needs to become, that, in my opinion, that needs to happen first before we start getting other partners into your life. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of a chicken and the egg kind of thing. People say, well, love yourself, but if you've never received love and you truly believe you are unworthy of love, then you can't really love yourself. But to get worthy of love, so to speak, to be loved, you must believe that you can be loved and you must have some self-respect to be able to stand up and do the right things. So it, it is fixing both at the same time. That's why you have to you have to balance out the brain first so it's calm and logical. Then you assess yourself and say, okay, long-term thinking, not short-term thinking. What are my long-term principles? 
What, what's most important? Who do I want to be? Who am I dying because I'm not? What, mm-hmm. what, is, what is the agony that's happening because I'm not honest? I'm not compassionate. I'm not, in, you know, I don't have integrity. I don't have honor. I don't have, you know, whatever it might be. What principles are you not living up to? What principles do you have that you value that you're not living up to so you hate yourself? That's really where it comes down to is the attachment makes you, in some ways, give up your principles for, to earn approval from others so that you will stay alive. It's your brain saying, I have to give up my principles or I will die over and over, every day, in every circumstance, in every relationship. That's where that self-hatred comes from. So identifying your principles that you have, your three, three to five core principles that you live by, three is easy, three core principles you live by, and then choosing to live by them. When you have those, I'm an anxious person conversations, here's the, here's the principles I want to start living by. And then you start living by them and you receive acceptance from other people, but you also now value and respect yourself because you're a person who lives to your principles. It happens at the same time and it's crucial. And that's where self-respect comes from is I live by my internal code, by my principles, and I don't let anybody stop me from them. I don't give them up every single day to everybody who walks by to get their approval. That's where that self-respect comes from. And it has to happen together with the love that you receive from other people. A couple more just quick hitters here. Something that really fascinates me, Adam, is uh, just the idea or the differences between men and women and how a lot of people grow up and they don't know main differences. And then they get into relationships and it's 10, 15, 20 years before they're like, oh my gosh, this is how you are you know, biologically, neurologically. And I, I, if I would have known this when I was 20, this could have saved me so much time. So I'm curious. I know we've touched on a few, but are there a, are there a couple of things that if you were to just speak to the men, hey, most women are like, boom, 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 boom. This will save you some time. Women, most men you're trying are like to get, this. You're trying, to get, you're trying to get me shot, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> are there some general ideas that we can, as men and women know, either before we get into a marriage or, or you know, before we get into a serious relationship that can help save us some time? Absolutely. Um, so speaking to neurotypical women, most women, the majority of women and the majority of men, knowing that there will be exceptions, but that the exceptions tend to prove the rule, knowing that speaking about the majority, Women tend to value emotional intimacy, connectedness, that honesty, and stability and predictability in good ways. Good stability, good predictability based on internal codes. They look for that. 200,000 years of human conditioning has programmed them to look for that stability, to look for men that they respect, and to connect with those men. It is impossible to build a good, loving marriage with, some, with a woman if she does not respect you. And to do that, you must live by your internal code, not by her approval. You must live by your internal code, even if that leads you into conflict with her, because she she may not like it at the moment that you're in conflict with her over a principle, but she will respect you for it. And that will keep the marriage intact. And that will diminish most fighting because she can't fight against your principle. If you just say, this is my principle, a good, healthy woman will not say, well, please break that principle for me. She's going to go, Well, I, I, don't, I don't, she'll start thinking of ways around it, but she'll be like, well, you can't break your principle because I won't respect you and I won't want that. I don't want that, but I don't want this. And you say, well, where are we going to have to go from here? So that number one thing men can do is be honest, be connected, live by your own internal principles, but also that vulnerability, that emotional intimacy, wrap them together. Here's my problem. Here's what I'm feeling about it. Here's what I'm going to do about it. Give me some input. Give me some insight. Give them that value, that value input. For men, um, for women, I should say, what are men like? Um, very solution focused, very solution focused. See a problem, fix a problem. 
This is why men often, when when women start trying to talk to them and just sharing sharing love and intimacy and details, and they're not looking for a solution, they're looking to share and process. Most women typically process their feelings out loud too, and and they share with with a confidant. Um, they will start talking. The man will start shutting them down, saying, "No, do this. No, do that. We'll do this. Wait, I already told you to fix that." And and the woman's like. He doesn't want to talk to me. He doesn't want to listen to me. He's not spending his time on me. What, what am I doing wrong? Why is he mad at me? He's like, why isn't she taking my advice? She should be happy. I'm giving her advice. I'm telling her what to do. One of the best things men can do when a woman starts talking about something and you have no idea why she's talking about it is just ask, hey, you know what? Real quick, I would love, I'm, I'm loving listening to you, but I just want to know, are you wanting me to solve this or just listen? Ask that question. Stop and just ask that question and say, hey, which one? I, and say, like, don't, don't just say, do you want me to solve it or just listen? Say, hey, I'm loving listening to you. I just need to know, are you looking for a solution or are you just looking to talk with me? I just want to talk nine times out of 10. I just want to talk with you and just, just kind of tell you how it's going. Oh, okay. And now in your brain, click over the solution. The reason she's sharing is to build emotional intimacy. The solution you need to output is to be quiet and listen and, and, and give active listening. Oh, ooh, wow. Wow. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, all that stuff that shows you're actually listening and please actually listen. Don't just tune her out and think about, you know, all the other stuff in your life. But um, that's one of the number one things you can do to help her feel emotional intimacy with you. Because if women are talking to you, it means they like you. When women don't like you, they don't talk to you. And this is why the silent treatment is so deadly. And so many guys are like, oh, finally, she stopped talking. And, but it's the end of the relationship because she's not talking. That's why it's the ultimate penalty for women is the silent treatment. Um, if she's talking to you, just stop and ask, hey, do you want a solution? Or am I just listening? Cool. I'm listening. Give me everything you got. And you sit back and you pay close attention. Put your phone away. Pay close attention because she is building emotional intimacy with you. In some ways, that is like sex for her. In some ways, this is like a se almost sexual act for her bonding with you. And it will make sex later so much more likely to happen and so much more better for both of you when it does happen. So best thing you can do. I feel, I feel very warm because this is, this is me, man. I, I am solution focused. I always want to fix the problems and this, this, the asking the question I think is just, it's brilliant. Do you want me to solve something? Or do you want me to just listen? I think most times, Adam, they just want, they just want you to listen in, in my case. And yes. so it's just, and, and just being okay with that. Your, your tweet yes. is perfect. It said, most men don't know how female communication works. They provide solution, solutions, which is what they want when a woman wants validation. When this is pointed out, most men assume it's untrue because they'd hate only to receive validation instead of solution. This is me. I don't want validation. I want some help. Help me get through this problem. Talk to me yes. about that. Yes. No, that's, it is true. Most men will disbelieve it and will say, that sounds dumb. Why would somebody want that? I'm confused. How am I supposed to do that? And then they're sitting there like, the, even if I tell them that, they sit there the whole time going, you know, you could fix this. And the woman's like, just listen. And she's fighting them the whole time. Best thing you can do to build intimacy is just listen. It is solving a purpose. It is solving a problem. Men in our brains, click it over and say, my just listening is not wasted time. It is solving a problem. The problem is she wants to get closer intimacy. I am solving a problem by listening. That is the solution she wants from me. So I will help her with it by listening. And women listening to this were probably laughing right now saying that is so crazy and like computeristic and like stupid. Why would men need to do that? That is what men need to do is say, this is the solution I'm providing to you. 
I will listen for as long as you want me to. And that will get the best. The more you listen, the more bet the better your outcome is. Not to invest in the outcome, but I mean, the the better things will be. The better the bonding will be. The better she will feel. The better your relationship will become. Value the times where she is talking at you because it means that she feels safe sharing that with you, and it will build everything else out. So view that as a piece, a a a mate retention behavior. View that as a relationship improvement. View it as getting an oil change in your car. You just sit there while they're changing your oil or you're just changing your oil. It's something you got to do, but it makes everything else work so much better. And to all the women out there who just heard me say that listening to you is like getting an oil change, I'm sorry. But sometimes we men, we got to think about it that way as like, this is a purpose. It's serving a purpose. So much we men, we think that the communication should only happen if it's serving a purpose and if it's solving a problem specifically. And we have to think of, no, this has a purpose. She's not sharing this because it's stupid and pointless. She's not just chattering to hear herself chatter. She is fulfilling a purpose. That purpose is beyond our comprehension. <laughs> it is something that we don't understand. We will trust her, trust your partner, trust your wife or your girlfriend, your fiance, trust her that it is serving a purpose, value her enough to listen and really listen and get involved and do this a few times and see, see the benefits that plays out in her mental health, in your relationship or care with you she will reciprocate that care with you on the things that don't make sense to her that she's like you're a weird dude but i'm going to do what you you say is helpful to you and and i'll trust that it's helpful she will reciprocate for you because we don't make sense to each other um i'll give you one more life hack one more life hack in relationships do Do you ever ask do you ever ask your fiance where she wants to go eat and it it turns into like this crazy conversation have you ever had that experience yes (laughs) do you know do you know how to do you know why that happens and how to solve it teach me Okay. So it happens because you throw out there, hey, where do you want to go eat? And typically women's brains back and forth start analyzing. Okay. Where can we eat? Well, where would be a fun place? Well, not just where do I feel like eating? Because us men were like, well, where, what do I have a craving for? There's it's where can we go have an experience together? Well, what does he want? Well, is he happy? Is he sad right now? What is he in the mood for? I don't know. I don't have any of that data. What if I pick the wrong place? What if he goes some, we go somewhere and it's a crappy experience? Their brain starts running like this thinking about like how to give you the best experience and give both of you the best experience for the relationship. And then they're like, well, it's up to you, babe, wherever you want to go. I'll just be happy as long as you're happy. And you're like, how do, like, no, what do you want to eat? And she's like, no, I, I, wherever. But you're like, no, what do you want to eat? Tell me woman. And she's like, well, I, I'll be happy as long as you're happy. And it turns into this like gladiator death match over who is going to make the decision. And you're like, please, I just want you to be happy. I will pick a place, but but I'd rather you help me pick it so you're happy. And she's like, why are you getting angry? I'm just trying to make sure you have a good time. And it turns into this death match. It's her brain saying, I don't have any data here. I don't know how to give us the best experience. So I'm not going to make this decision. The best thing you can do. The best thing you can do is say, hey, babe, let's go get something to eat. I would like to go blank or blank. Either place is fine with me. Of those two, which one sounds best to you? And she, her brain will say, ah, he'll be happy either place. The pressure is off. We'll have a great experience. Which one am I feeling? Then she'll start thinking like, well, which one do I kind of want to eat at? Well, that sounds fun. And we'll have a great experience there. And we've had a great experience there in the past. And her brain will start replaying past experiences like, aha, that's right. The data is right. Yes, let's go to this one. And she'll pick one of those two. But you have to make it clear you will be happy with either experience. That 
for most women, that is the process they follow. Not all, not all, but most. And that is how you make it easy is say, pick one of these two places. Sounds great. And if she says, well, I don't think either one of those will really work for me. Then you say, then we're not going anywhere. And you burn the car down. No, you say, <laughs> okay. And you give her two more places. Don't, her, her brain will get overwhelmed with analysis paralysis, trying to give you the best experience and give the two of you a shared experience. Make it easier on her. That will solve the problem every, every, almost every single time you will ever experience it. You will never have that fight again. Give her two places. Tell her both sound great to you. Ask which one she prefers. That will, oh, there you go. There you I go. Would Life I, would, I would imagine that this goes beyond just eating at restaurants. Wouldn't you say, Adam, this is also just about oh, providing a little bit more direction. Is, there, is, is that the theme you're trying to describe here is just giving a little bit more direction? Often, yes. It's, it's reducing the risk that she will pick something bad and harm the relationship. And it's enhancing the, the ability for her to choose what is best for the relationship. Because women tend not to be selfish creatures. They're not looking at like what will make me the happiest and screw everybody else. If, they, if, if a woman loves you, she wants to give both of you a, a shared experience. And the food typically is secondary to her shared experience with you. And then she'll find something she likes there while prioritizing the shared relationship experience and especially optimizing your, your experience. That's what that's that's where it's coming from. It's not malicious <laughs> and it's not mean or bad or, or hiding. And, and it gets worse if there's attachment problems because then the stakes are so much higher. They have to get it right or else this will be the last burger we ever shared together ever. It, it's make, make it easier. Make it easier in every direction. It's providing guidance. We, we talk, you know, um, a lot of people talk about leading a woman, um, being the leader in the home, the man being the leader. It's not controlling and domineering and, and this is how it's going to be. And if it's not... It, it is just providing a little more guidance in places that would make her life easier, that makes it easier for her to make those decisions. It is providing that guidance so, so that her brain doesn't get uh, paralyzed by that overwhelming feeling. It's providing stability so she can make her own decisions and be who she fully is instead of having to be afraid and, and feel like things are unstable. That's really the core of men being the leader in the home is providing stability and providing more context so that she feels more secure in making those decisions, not making them all for her. Does that make sense? It does. I have one more question. It's going to feel a little bit out of order, but I really wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on people? And I'm asking almost like when you say I'm asking for a friend, I'm asking for myself. Mm -hmm. You talk a little mm -hmm. bit about um, describing and um, letting your partner know your needs. And to be honest, Adam, I'm, I feel like I'm the type of person that doesn't have a lot of needs. There's just not a lot of things that I feel like I need. And maybe that's something I need to yep. think more about, but I imagine I'm not the only person, at least I hope I'm not the only person that feels that way. What are your thoughts for people out there that they want to be able to express their needs and they just don't really know what they are? Is there a process there or, or you know, are, we, are we bad people because we don't have needs? What does that look like? Yes. No, <laughs> no. Um, it, it, a lot of people, when, they, when you spend your life with, with broken attachment, you, you push aside your own needs and you, you purposely don't know what they are. And then because you're never going to ask anybody anyway, and you wouldn't even know what it would look like to fix them. You're just hurt. You're just sad. Or once you fix some of your own problems, you become so self-reliant that you don't really have anything to ask of other people is kind of how it starts to feel. I tell people, look for the places where you still hurt. Look for the things when you watch a movie, a romance movie, and you say, dang, I wish somebody would feel that way about me, would talk to me like that, would run their fingers through my hair. Men, physical affection is huge. Non-sexual physical affection needs are huge for men, but we feel terrible asking for a hug. 
We feel hor- like like someone will shoot us. So you ask for a hug, they're just going to pull out a gun and shoot you because you're so pathetic. Um, asking for those physical affection pieces, asking to be greeted with a smile, asking for anything, anything that you need. Identify where you are sad. Identify where you feel lonely. Identify where you feel hurt. Identify the things you wish you could experience. Identify the things that would make your life easier. Sometimes it's helping optimize your life. Sometimes it's removing burdens from your life. Sometimes it's just making your life generally easier. For me and my wife, we've been together for 14 years. We got engaged two weeks after getting after meeting each other. We got married at 11 months, and we've been together for 14 total years now. We have four kids. Um, I don't have dire needs. Like, I will die if you don't do this. But I will say, hey, my work schedule this week, I got like 70 hours I got to pull. I'm not even going to have time to like cook lunches. Could you please cook me lunches for like five days this week on these days? Could you could you handle that for me? That would be so helpful. And she'd be like, yeah, of course. That's I'm totally here for that. And I said, oh, great, great. And then not like, what can I do to pay you back? But I'll say, is there anything anything that you need? While we're on the topic, is there anything that you need? Anything I can do for you and re- not in return, but an- anything I can do to help optimize your experience? And she'll be like, no, I'm, I'm good right now. But later, if she has something, she'll come back. You open the door. You say, hey, I have this need. What can we do to get that met? I, right. I need this. I need this. These meals. Can, can we do that? What can we do to work that out? And if she was like, well, that would be really hard unless I get good sleep and to get good sleep. Could you put the kids to bed later at night? I know you're working those hours, but could you put them to bed at night so I get better sleep that night? So I'm not like trying to drag the kids through two hours of bedtime if they're awake too much. Yeah, I can do that. You cook my meals. I will take care of the kids. Totally good. Let's trade it up. I think um, I think the part I grapple with is the the difference between a want and a need. Like do like you said, it's not a dire need. Like I need to have this. So to me, it's almost like framing it as a it's a little bit more of a want in my mind. Is that bad? It can it can be no. Yeah. Like hey, this would be really helpful. Could you do this right. for me? Yes, right. I could. Yes, I Adam, I could stay up until two in the morning, cook prepping and cooking those meals for myself. But she's already going to be cooking a bunch of stuff. Just make extras and throw leftovers in the fridge. That would be so helpful. I could do it. And it's kind of a want and it's kind of a need. It's helpful. It's helpful. Even that can be a need, but sometimes we have genuine needs. A lot of guys um, in marriages, I've worked with people, I've worked with couples that come in and they're like fifties and they're like, we've only had sex once a year for the past 10 years. And the guy's upset. And I look at the woman and say, why is that? She says, because he never asks. I didn't think he wanted it more than once a year. So asking for these things is really crucial (laughs) asking for those needs that need to be met even even down to sex even down to that for men it's usually hey uh i i could really could really use some love soon it's been several days and and uh shall we say the pressure is on can we do this soon and if you're like if your wife loves you she will not say well yeah that'll be three hundred dollars she probably will say hopefully she probably will say yeah, but we haven't spent much time together. Could we spend like a half hour together first so I feel closer to you? And then it will be a much better experience for both of us. So her price is let's spend some time together. And really, you're trading needs. You're meeting each other's needs as a shared partnership, saying your need is that, my need is this. They're wrapped up together. Let's meet both needs together and make the system work better. It's, it's not even trading necessarily. It's working together to solve everybody's needs as a team. Um, or wants or, or preferences or whatever it might be. They're all kind of wrapped up together. Well, 
Adam, this is awesome, man. You are an incredibly intelligent dude. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've really enjoyed um, devouring all your content and the research into this episode. And um, I just look forward to keep uh, keeping up with your content, reading your other books. So I read Slaying Your Fear. Um, what other books do you have and what other ways can my listeners either follow you or learn from you? Is there specific avenues that you'd send specific people towards? Yeah. So Slaying Your Fear is up there on Amazon. I've got a book called Exhausted Wives, Bewildered Husbands. Half of the book is the same as Slaying Your Fear. It's the same attachment discussion and what it is and how it happens. But then the second half of the book is for couples who the wife is exhausted and the husband has no idea why. And they've dealt with attachment problems for 15, 20 years, and they're on the edge of divorce, and now they have to repair it. So first half of the book is the same. Second half is just for those couples, just for those older couples typically, um, or, or any couple who's in that moment. Um, that's my second book. Um, mostly I write like gunfight and car chase books and explosions and stuff. I write, I've published like 10 or 12 of those. So most of my books are going to be fun versus educational. I am coming out with another attachment book. I'm hoping to redefine some of how we deal with mental health in this country. Sweet, cool. So I'll be coming out with that soon. I've got 70 or 80 free YouTube guides for how to apply attachment in your life in like 70 or 80 different ways for different relationship pieces. I'm over on YouTube, Adam Lane Smith, um, adamlanesmith.com. I've got a ton of resources on there, all kinds of crap. I've got um, I've got a new video. Hey, I can share this with you. I haven't really shared this anywhere. I've got a new video course coming out. I can't decide if I'm going to call it attachment bootcamp or instant attachment boost, but it is 10 steps a person can take to fix their attachment with themselves, cool. with their close family and relationships, and then build a lifetime love and find a lifetime uh, partner. Um, 10 steps. It's it's going to be a long, like 4K video course, oh, wow, like cool. overlays. It's going to be gorgeous. That'll be coming up pretty soon. I've got YouTube? an attachment community. Um, no, I'm going to be putting that out as like a, a paid module. Oh, cool. Kind of thing to cool. educate like hours and hours and hours of content. Awesome. You buy it cool. and you can, well, you watch it a hundred times with different people. Um, and then I've got a, a discord community, a paid discord community for people with healthy attachment who want other people with healthy attachment and want trouble, troubleshooting pieces and want to connect with me all the time. I'm going to do live streams in there, live Q and A's community events. We're going to be small now with we're guilt building like founding members but we're going to build up to larger, larger community. And I'm looking to build local connections for people so that you can Very find cool. the healthy people in your local environment. So you're not oh, cool. alone. That's where I'm going right now. So I'm building that adamlanesmith.com. Check that out. That's where a lot of this all kind of jumps off from. So I'm That's even going cool, to re man. revamp the website. So it's easier to find all my stuff. It's hard right now. Very cool. And then did I see something about a course for guys looking to get a girlfriend? Was there something like that? Out there? <laughs> how to get a girlfriend? Yeah. Adam tell me, tell me about that real quick. How could somebody, cause I'm imagining there's going to be somebody that wants to check that out. They'll just go ahead and advertise. Uh, thank you. Thank you for prompting. Um, how to get a girlfriend is a Gumroad video course. It's hours and hours and hours of content. And I've gone back and doubled the expansion, doubled it out so that it's even more than it originally was. It is Guys looking for a healthy, loving girlfriend, want to bypass the psychos who are going to ruin your life and want to build a lifetime love for the rest of your life. I had a dude took it and within a couple of weeks, a couple months, he met a woman, got engaged. They got married after like wow. a year and they're still together. And it's, he said it's the best relationship he's ever had in his life and it gets better every day. Um, I got, I've been training people how to do that, how to build that out, where to find those women, how to connect to them, how to build your own value how to get your network going on it, how to have a good first date, how to, what to talk about on a good first date versus the normal crap dates that people do. 
how to build that connection fast and, and connect with healthy women so that they'll like handcuff themselves to you and want to get married the first day kind of thing. <laughs> I, it, it's, it's super simple once you know it, and then a ton of tips on exactly how to do it and focus in on it. And, and it works. It yeah, that's works. cool. Where, where is that now? Where can somebody get to that? Um, Gumroad, gumroad.com. Okay. If you just Google Adam Lane Smith, how to get a girlfriend, boom, it'll pop up. I think it's like 27 bucks. It's, it's a several hour video course. So Adam, this is awesome, man. Thank you so much for taking the time today. And uh, I appreciate everything that you're putting out there. And it's just, uh, it's very enlightening and I've been learning so much. So just thank you for taking the time. Uh, thank you, man. I was looking forward to this. So this is a good conversation. Let's do it again soon.